So this evening I'd like to talk about equanimity, what I refer to as the fruit of practice. Um, I'll start off by saying I have a dream or I had a dream because Martin Luther King's not the only one. You know. The dream I had was back in the 80s. I was trying to think about the first um, potent recollection I had of this thing called equanimity. And it was back in, in the 85, 1985-ish, and um, I lived in Santa Cruz, and I did all things Santa Cruz, the land of spiritual materialism. So it's just great fun. So I remember um, taking this uh, dream workshop there, and uh, we journaled the dreams, and they were very informative and everything. And I had this one dream of um, being in this big body. This was way before I was in Buddhism. Having this big body with my face on it, sitting on this flower out in the middle of a large still lake, just kind of very serene. And there was thunder and lightning and hail and all kind of things showering down on my head and just everywhere, you know, in this just amazing scenery. But what I remember most was sitting in that seat and not being disturbed by it. Um, and the, the lightning and, you know, all of the storm that was coming down was had parts of people's face on it that were people I was in conflict with and people I'd forgotten about and thought I was done with and here they are just storming all in. Uh, so it was just a horrific uh, storm. But what I remember most was sitting in the center of it or whatever this big body was with my face on it seeming to be at ease. So there was this quality of stillness, this stability, this contentment. Um, that was what was predominant in the experience. And it would take me many years before I realized what that dream really meant. That it was uh, the Buddha sitting on the lotus flower, having a peaceful war with Mara, <laughs> the Lord of uh, obstacles and challenges and seduction and temptation and all those things. So I invite you to think about when have you experienced freedom right in the middle of suffering? You know, it could have been a very brief moment of uh, a glance or a deep knowing that you were touched by or an insight you had or, you know, a teaching you heard, something that got your attention and made you sit up straight and lean in. You know, so it's what have, have been your experience 
When have you experienced this freedom? And what wisdom allowed it to be, allowed it to happen? What wisdom was at play that supported you kind of recognizing what that was for you? The interesting thing about the Buddhist teachings is oftentimes people are attracted to the iconology, the the images, the the peaceful, serene look. Most people I know say, I want some of that. I'll take a dozen of those, please. And I can understand that from this direct hit I got from this dream of really feeling, wow, it, it was homeopathic. A little was a lot. It was a vast hit, you know, of something very precious and known. It's what gives birth to most inclinations and aspirations of spiritual quests. This sense of inner ease, peace, stability. Some of us think we're going to get it overnight, but, (laughs) you know. Equanimity is a quality that is the fruit of practice. It's kind of the result, if you will, of the investment we've been making all week, you know, the practice of of, um, coming closer and closer to our own Buddha nature through these teachings, through this path. So it's a beautiful, beautiful aspiration. So the Pali word for equanimity is upeka. Upeka. And I've heard it referred to as the crown jewel of Buddhist practice. One of my teachers referred to it that way. And what it means is to look over, to stand in the middle of all things. It's referred to as an evenness of mind. Peace, ease, and also equipose, this sense of presence, stability, confidence, undisturbed by the winds of life. It's the key, it's the ease that comes from understanding from the inside that there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's a deep knowing of those laws of our existence. Equanimity, in my mind, is associated with a a broad view, a panoramic view of seeing the big picture seeing the big picture and seeing through delusion is how I see it. And seeing with perspective from a broader perspective. It's uh, an inner strength that keeps us upright. It's kind of like the core of the practice, the strength that's developed from the core that keeps the body up and keeps the muscles of the mind and heart in fine-tuned form.
And it's the experience of well-being, confidence, and integrity. So this balance, this even-mindedness comes from stability and wisdom, not just the idea of of, um, equanimity. It's coming from a mindset that says, I can be with this and acceptance and welcome of oneself and others, and allowing of what arises to be known and also to move through. It's a state of non-agitation and and non-resistance with what's here. we can begin to notice the quality of equanimity in our practice uh, through a story that the, through through a sutta I read, that the, um, when the Buddha was talking to his son, Raula, about equanimity, about being undisturbed. And I can't remember all of it, but it had to do with, he was referring to some imagery. He talked about being a mountain, the mountain of earth and solidity and not being disturbed by the seasons that come and go. Some of you may have touched into this sense of your own inner mountain of solidity and presence and, and, um, and, and not being rocked. You know? Another image was the image of uh, space. All things can be seen within space. Space doesn't resist anything. Everything moves within it. Space is not disturbed by what's in it. So as we've moved through this, these few days, you may have noticed a sense of space opening and that sense of uh, being able to Uh, welcome all that arises and passes away within the space. Maybe there were moments like that. And we can begin to touch that sense of ease. Kind of breeze even that can be there. He also described an ocean. The sense of the ocean that the ocean can hold all things And uh, can just swallow up cities and, you know, I mean, just, it's just unfathomable to think about what the ocean is capable of. That's the, that's the quality of the field of equanimity. Undisturbed by what's in it because of its vastness. And the other image that was shared with the, was the image of a strong fire a fire that can engulf whatever's thrown in it. It's not disturbed by what you throw in it because it just fries it all. Some of us have been sitting with fire. (laughs) Not with equanimity, but, you know, 
least we can have a taste of that. But what these images suggest to me is just the vastness of this field of um, stability and ease and well-being that's referenced, associated with equanimity. So awareness is not disturbed. You know, awareness of anger is not angry. Awareness of fear is not frightened. So it's this kind of welcoming of our experience. The place we can sit in that's at the top of the mountain where we can see with wise eyes the panoramic view. There's an African spiritual song that was um, around the civil rights uh, civil rights protest song that was called I Shall Not Be Moved. Remember that? You know. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. It's kind of like that. It's a mind state that when cultivated, it has a power to, to support the reduction of suffering and it also supports the experience of freedom. So equanimity is prominent in the Buddhist teachings. It's, it's, it's in a lot of different places very much a part of the Eightfold, the Noble Eightfold Path that Mary spoke of last night. It's associated with wise mindfulness. It's part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's the seventh of the seven factors of awakening. One of the things I noticed about equanimity and reading the different places that it shows up is it's usually towards the end. It's kind of like the ripening um, part of the path. You know, it's, it's got this kind of culminating quality to it. So there's seven factors, and the last one is equanimity. It's also very much a part of wise effort because it speaks so much to balance. The balance from extremes of deprivation and indulgence. As Mary was saying last night, equanimity or the sense of equanimity has this ability to hold both joy and suffering in balance. It's not discriminating. Equanimity supports us in resting tenderly with what's right here without war. It's part of what the Buddha refers to in in the middle way. To remain centered in the middle of whatever is happening. It's kind of like this moment is like this, and it doesn't have to be different. It's 
Toni Morrison in her book Tar Baby, she says it this way. She says, at some point in life, the world's beauty becomes enough. You don't need to photograph, paint, or even remember it. It's enough. No record of it needs to be kept, and you don't need someone to share it with or to tell it to. When that happens, that letting go, you let go because you can. It's just a beautiful way of getting. It's not this or that. It's not conditioned. It's coming from a place of wisdom. The Buddha describes a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. This week in the Brahma Viharas, um, which are four expressions of love, four expressions of care that the Buddha taught, you know, it's one of those four, of course. And we've been seeing how these practices are concentration practices. They have a way of steadying the mind. And the phrases we've been using for the different Brahmaviharas are phrases that help us remember in our practice what must never be forgotten, <laughs> you know. They're not necessarily meant to be conversations with other people, but ways of reprogramming the mind out of its conditioning towards a more um, easeful way to be in the life. So the Brahma-vihara of equanimity is rooted in this wisdom, this kind of way of holding um, your mind, and it goes like this. Beings are the owner of their actions, the heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. Now, the wisdom in this, um, I think, comes from understanding the notion that um, there can be extremes when we're working with our mind that puts us in places of, of um, being attached as an extreme or being indifferent at the other end. And there's, um, there's, a, there's, there's a cause and effect. There's our actions are replanted. That's how I see it. It's like I asked my teacher, Jack Cornfield, once. I said, you know, what is it that gets reborn? You know, and he said, consciousness. So consciousness recycles. A lot of the, some of the Buddhist traditions are focused on how we die because of that. How we live and how we die because how we die is what's, you know, reborn. 
that's in many other traditions as well, that belief. But when we take this kind of stance of our actions, we're the owner of our actions, the wish that we have is that we respond wisely so that we're not uh, planting seeds that will bloom, that will cause harm. And we're not assuming we can fix a situation that really isn't to our, in our capacity to fix. So we see this often in our families and in our minds through issues around addiction or issues of letting go and being in situations with people that we can't control the outcome. And so some of the phrases in the Brahma-Vihara practices is to understand, is to support us and understand how to work with that in our own minds and our own hearts so that we're not constantly in a place of suffering and struggle. So what some of the phrases are that support us here is this this sense of support of non-clinging and also not being indifferent. Or, I wish you happiness, but I cannot make your choices for you. So this wish to be in relationship with loved ones, with families, with dear ones, even with difficult ones with an understanding of, of what's ours and what's not and what we can do and what we can't. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not so much my wishes for you. You feel the quality of still being present, but without taking on the suffering or the, 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 the work Um, of the other person. It's a sense of non-interference with someone's karmic (laughs) ride. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a natural law. This, this understanding of this works best when we think about the people that are real close to us that we try to control. Now, maybe you don't do that, but, <laughs> but I do. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. So you're sitting in your seat, being with the truth of these natural laws. I care for you, but I cannot control your happiness or unhappiness. This is deep compassion, deep compassion practice. I ran across something that said, it is not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. 
It is the work of love to admire the beauty before you, to give people a sense of safety to unfold, to keep each other company when drowning in anguish until the wave can balance out and our feelings can once again live in us. Equipose. Staying in your seat. Eyes and heart wide open. Seen with perspective. Non-interference with the karmic rhythm of one's life. So equanimity is something we can feel in the body. It's the um, experience of non-reactivity. And um, it's that sense of, uh, the, the Buddha talks about the eight worldly winds that are constantly blowing our minds and our lives. The winds of pleasure and pain gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and shame. Can you see the cha-cha-cha of all of that? (laughs) You know. And if we're not in our seat, we get blown away all the time like a tossed salad, just always being flip-flopped. If we're not seeing it for what it is, seeing the nature of it, Seeing that change is all there is, impermanence, at play, constantly. So the idea with equanimity is to know the energetic mind and rest in it. That's a practice. It's not something we automatically know how to do because of our conditioning around greed, aversion, delusion but just to plant the seed that we can sit in the middle of disturbance and be okay. It's possible. Wise concentration is also um, a place where you'll find, you know, the experiences of equanimity. Equanimity is often associated with, with the fourth jhana. And um, that's a practice that Mary has talked about in terms of deeper concentration states, which is part of the eighth of the eighthfold path, where there's just this way that we can really begin to delve into deeper states of what the mind is actually capable of through a sense of calm and stability. And then there's the question of how do we practice equanimity? What do we do with that on the cushion? And part of what we did this morning in the guided practice was was one step in that direction of looking at how we can be still while still moving. This sense of inner soothing that can happen through the first foundation of mindfulness, of just being with the body and the breath. 
really taking your time to know stillness. There's also in the first factors, jhana factors, is the practice of uh, vitaka and vichara, which is aiming your attention to the breath or to the phrases, and then sustaining vichara, sustaining your attention there. So aiming, sustaining, aiming, sustaining. It's building the muscle of stability and presence. There's the practices on the cushion, and then there's the practices off the cushion with equanimity. And the paramis is also where you find equanimity. There's ten paramis or ten perfections that the bodhisattva walks the world with, walks through the world with. The bodhisattva is a person just like you or me who takes vows to uh, become enlightened or liberated for the well-being of all, all beings, without exception. So their practice, like our practice, is sitting on the cushion, developing the heart and mind, but in service to the larger world. And equanimity is very much a part of this, the commitment that's taken by the bodhisattva. And a couple of other qualities that are inherent in the walk of someone who's dedicating themselves, like you to some extent, dedicating you know, yourself to waking up, that then spills over like compassion to the needs and the cries of the world. The bodhisattva walks with an understanding of interdependence, kindness, and harmlessness, to name a few. And we can see in our own lifetime, perhaps, that there's been people that's kind of walked with that kind of tender care and wisdom. Eckhart Tolle says that ultimately you are not a person, but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. So it's not about you. And this is something that the Bodhisattva understands. There's interdependence that um, recognizes that we're all part of a vast cellular system. One big nervous system. We're all in these cellular suits, these self-suits that have colors and shapes and ages and models and brokenness and, you know, all floating around in this skinless body of awareness, you know, necessary. Part of being in the world with our hearts wide open 
and with the kind of wisdom we're developing here is that we really can see clearly, um, you know, the suffering in the world. And there's a lot of suffering in the world these days. But we have people that we can call on or call up to kind of examine, you know, how did they do it? How did they sit in the suffering with wisdom? How did they, how did they maintain a sense of equanimity given how, how wacky the world is? We see this, for example, in the belief system of the Lakota people in North America, the prayer that they have, which, which is translated as all are related. When you have a sense that we're interdependent, it really influences how you move in the world, your, the actions you take. So Standing Rock was a beautiful example of a movement. These movements that we have in our history are in search of equipose, of balance in the social system. It's not just about your comfort or your liberation or your safety. It's about what is the larger, vast nervous system? How is it doing? And can we not be indifferent to that or overly clinging to it? All are related. Really getting that as a wisdom that that, that supports the uprightness of equanimity. Martin Luther King said it well in his letter, from the Birmingham jail, he said, it is in a real sense, I can just see him writing this, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men, I forgive him for that, all men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This is the interrelated structure of reality. We're all in this woven, this tapestry. This single garment And Gandhi said that we but mirror the world. We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. This is the divine supreme. This is the divine mystery supreme. You know? What did, what did 
Martin Luther King says, this is the interrelated structure of reality. Gandhi saying, this is the divine mystery supreme. You know, they're talking to how the deep understanding that we are all related. We're all interconnected. We're all relatives. So these movements we see in the world are movements that are in search of equanimity, balance. The Black Lives Movement is another in that same kind of neighborhood. In 2016, police killed approximately 258 black people. 34% were unarmed. Vast exodus, vast imbalance in this tapestry of life. Forced a movement. Black Lives Matter is not just interested in black lives, it's interested in equanimity and balance and equipose. So we don't have to be in such grandeur (laughs) as these big movements. Sometimes it's just really looking at our relationships or looking at our families or looking in our own hearts to see how we're doing in these areas and what's needed. So the Bodhisattva uses every obstacle in life to wake up and to serve. These phrases are inspired by Thomas Merton. And they, I think, do a beautiful job of supporting us in prayers as we move in the world with the hardships that we see. I'm aware in Charlottesville and probably other places in the world that the Ku Klux Klan just had a march and there's all kinds of preparations for the alt-right march that will be there in a few weeks and the inside community is kind of organizing itself to show up uh, in love to this imbalance that we that's in your face we all have some version of that in our lives so these words are like social equanimity prayers that we can repeat inside ourselves as we do the work that must be done to balance social harm. So I invite you to close your eyes as I read these to you. And just touch in just for a minute on what it's like just 
hearing this message. Taking your time to really not just hear the words, but let them touch you. May I see the world with quiet eyes. May I offer my care without resistance, knowing I may be met with gratitude, anger, or resistance. May I remain in peace and let go of expectations. May I offer love knowing I don't control the course of life, suffering, or death. May I see my limits with compassion just as I see the limits of others. May I be non-reactive to the changing circumstances of life. May I offer my best, knowing this may be of great benefit, some benefit, or no benefit. May I be free from preferences and prejudice. May I offer prayers without conditions, knowing I may be met with gratitude, anger, or resistance. May I see the world with quiet eyes. 
Equanimity is not something you can force or make happen. But it can be cultivated, which allows us to sit in the center of suffering and and know we're okay. And equanimity is deeply rooted in wisdom, not just will, but in a deep understanding of the nature of things, the law of things, the nature of how things are. So I'll end with this quote by David White because it's useful to hear what's been offered without trying to grab it all, just letting it seep in and find the parts that are meant for you will be remembered. So the sense of non-clinging to the information but staying close to the experience. So David White says, enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. So let's just sit a minute together. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.